0: Okay, uh, so we're going to start off with some questions today. Uh, the first one is, well, the first couple here today aren't really questions related to any material because the material that we had last time was on the exam, and the, um, this material is brand new. So we got a couple things here first off, um, assuming this is not going to totally mess up. There we go. So uh, the Health and Human Performance Department is actually, we're trying to do a little bit better job marketing ourselves, and in doing so, it was pretty much, uh, it's been noticed that we have no slogan to promote ourselves, and uh, some of the marketing people and some other people in the department have come up with these four finalists as potential slogans that could be used to promote the department, and what we're doing right now is we're trying to solicit some feedback from students to see which of these might be most meaningful to you. So essentially, if you will just vote for whichever one you think that you like the best, that would be great. Okay, so the first up is uh, leading well into the future. Uh, B is moving well into the future. C is healthy lives, healthy future. And D is leading well into the future. Oh, actually, and interestingly, okay, so obviously I, I typoed the last one there. Sorry about that. The uh, other exciting thing that I learned is the reason my laptop doesn't show on both screens is that the uh, video board is burned out. And uh, since it's not under warranty, it's actually cheaper to buy an entirely new laptop than it is to replace the video board. So, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's funny, you think that, well, this is actually the most expensive laptop Dell makes, and it was, I think, $4,000. And you would think for that kind of money it would last more than two years, but uh, I guess that's what I get for thinking. Okay, so thank you for that. The other thing is that apparently it's the company that makes the podium. Uh, They only sell their parts outside the United States, so they can't get the parts to fix the height of the podium either. So it's like permanently stuck at this really low height. So uh, that'll make the last few lectures at least exciting. All right, so another very hard question. So uh, in general on exam two, since you haven't seen your grades, how do you think that you did relative to exam one? exam one uh, okay uh, so anyway in any event uh i will get the exam grades up in the near future after thanksgiving day and uh certainly if you have any questions um before the final you know definitely come by and see me or send me an email or something because um the things that you may have missed on exam two are going to be on the final so if there's something that you missed because you didn't understand it, I'll be happy to explain that to you. If there's something that you missed because you didn't study enough, then you already know what you need to do to fix that. Okay. So one more question, just about some of this is related to the things that you have available to you on WebCT. All right. So uh, with uh, it, you know, in all seriousness, uh, there's there's actually a couple things that are coming up that I'm going to need for you guys to do. Um, one is the there's actually because it, for this course, there's two evaluations that you have to do. There is um, basically a distance learning evaluation, and then an evaluation or survey about the clickers. And so, you know, probably you've bubbled the evaluation sheets in another class. And uh, we don't do we don't use those evaluations. We use online electronic evaluations. And so, basically, the way it works is. I will post a link or it may already be on there on WebCT saying this is, where, this is the, the web address you go to to do the course evaluation. You put in the section number and you put in I think your student ID and then it will let you access the course evaluation. And it's going to ask you a lot of things about the course. Uh, I think there is some areas where you can actually type responses as well. And uh, I would definitely encourage you to provide as much information as you can on there. Uh, those surveys are very, very important to uh, to me in helping make this course better for students in the future. And if there's something, certainly a number of you said that there's some things that could, be, could have been done better in the online part of the class, I would love to hear what your ideas are that could be used to make it better. If there's something that could be done to make it more efficient, I would love to hear about that because um, those are all things that uh, I can use to make this a better experience. Uh, the other thing just to keep in mind is that the teaching evaluations are very important for any course at the university, but they're particularly important for someone like me who is in an untenured position. So, I'm trying to achieve tenure, but I haven't gotten it yet. Which means that my contract's evaluated on a year-to-year basis, and they effectively tell me in July whether or not they want me to come back for the next year. And uh, one of the things that goes into that decision is your responses to the teaching evaluations. So. Uh, I would hope that you would take those very seriously and definitely if you have constructive feedback that you think would make the course better, then uh, definitely let me know that. I know there will be some of you that will probably put on the evaluations that the exams are too hard and things like that, and that's fine if you think the exams are too hard, but uh, if you can tell me some things that you think um, would, other than giving you the answers before the exam, that would make the exam make you be able to perform better on the exams. Those are the kinds of things I'd really like to know. So, um, so that's the first thing is just a general survey of the course. The second thing is a survey that's specific to the uh, the clickers and how they were used in the class. And it's going to just ask you another series of questions. It shouldn't take you more than a couple minutes to complete both the surveys. And uh, both those pieces of information are really important to um, to moving along the way that we basically teach to you. So. Uh, certainly, those, the feedback that I get from those is really important. So I just please take them seriously. Know that they're not just, uh, you're not just wasting your time filling out a form that gets filed away in some cabinet that no one ever sees. So at the end of every year when I have my evaluation of my position, that's one of the things that gets looked at. So um, just be honest. You don't, have to, you don't have to say anything you don't want to say, but just be honest and you know, give me some constructive feedback. That would be excellent. Okay, uh, with that said, uh, we'll get on to cardiovascular physiology here, and um, at least a couple people sent me some comments suggesting that uh, the last time I lectured, I went a bit fast, um, and actually when I went back and listened to the audio, I think that's probably an understatement. I went really fast, and so um, if I'm going to try and slow things down just a little bit today, but if I get going too fast and you're not getting something written down, just raise your hand and ask me to pause or ask me to go back, that's not a problem. Alright, so first, uh, the overview of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to start, start off by looking at uh, blood flow uh, redistribution during exercise and basically showing you how uh, the fixed amount of blood that you have in your body can either be redirected to active muscle or, and uh, taken away from inactive tissues. We're gonna talk a little bit about hemodynamics and uh, what the importance of that is to how blood flows through the body. We are gonna talk more about oxygen consumption, uh, VO2. Uh, I've mentioned VO2 a couple times during the semester, but uh, we're just gonna look at it in more detail right now. Uh, We're gonna talk specifically about its relationship to blood pressure and the AVO2 difference. We're going to re-examine steady state responses to exercise and uh, within that we're going to talk about something that's called the double product of the heart. It's a measurement that can be used to determine how hard the heart is working. Uh, It's actually a, a measurement that's used quite often in cardiac rehabilitation settings. And then also within steady state responses we're going to look at the response to very long duration exercise. And finally, we'll wrap up talking about how the various uh, cardiovascular systems are controlled by the body. All right, so first up, um, the redistribution of blood flow during exercise. Uh, That's this very dizzying chart, and if you stare at it, it will make you dizzy. But uh, I'm going to try to kind of help you understand what's going on here because it's a pretty useful chart in in the way that it uh, shows you how... Uh, blood flow is changed in response to exercise and if you look at this chart there's a a black line going horizontal line going right through the center Um, it's a dashed line depending on how far you're back from the screen it may look like a straight line but it's a black line and the top half of the graph or the top half of the figure demonstrates the responses to heavy exercise or strenuous exercise the bottom half of the figure shows the body's normal responses at rest so let's start with the normal responses at rest. Um, we see blood. We see the heart on the far left, uh, just below the dotted line. That's where the blood flow all starts from. And at rest, the heart putting out 100% of what it's capable. of Putting out, it puts out about five liters of blood per minute. So in a in a minute's time, your blood, your heart will pump about five liters of blood. Okay we follow the line down from the, or, or to the right from the five liters per minute, 100%, you'll see that about 20 to 25% of that blood flow, that cardiac output, is directed to the digestive tract, to the liver and to the components that are located in the uh, abdominal cavity. About four to five percent of the blood flow is directed to the heart. Itself, the heart tissue. So that's the blood flow that actually goes back to help the cardiac muscles contract. About 20% of that blood flow gets directed to the kidneys. About 3 to 5% gets directed to the bones. 15% going to the brain. 4 to 5% going to the skin. And 15 to 20% going to skeletal muscle. Okay. the the circles that are beneath each of those uh, percentages show you how much blood flow that actually equates to. So basically, if you took uh, a cardiac output of 5 liters per minute, 20 to 25% of that cardiac output going to the digestive tract and the liver, that basically means that somewhere between a liter and a liter and a half are going to the digestive tract. If we look at the heart tissue itself, uh, we've only got 4 to 5%, so that means it's somewhere between uh, 0.2 and 0.25 liters of blood flow is going back to the heart tissue itself. Uh, 20% to the kidneys, so again, that's about a liter. Uh, 3 to 5% to the bones, so again, that's about 0.15 to uh, 0.25. 15% to the brain, so that's uh, roughly uh, 0.5 to 0.65. And then uh, four to five percent, so about again about uh, 0.01 to 0.025 to the skin, and then finally um, the remaining liter are a little bit less to the skeletal muscle. Okay, you don't really need to know those percentages. You don't really need to know those numbers. That's just to demonstrate what the blood flow is like at rest. When we when we change and we have the body start exercising, everything changes, and all of a sudden, you're, you have only a fixed amount of blood volume, but you can distribute it more quickly by having the heart pump more quickly, which increases the cardiac output. So if we look at the top of the graph, if we look at the heart and we follow it up, you still get 100% cardiac output, but now that cardiac output is equal to about 25 liters of blood per minute. So right there, you have a five times increase in the amount of blood that's being pumped by the heart per minute. So a five-fold increase in cardiac output. And then, if you follow this graph over to the right, you can see where the blood flow is going. You can see the percentage of blood flow to the digestive tract is significantly less, and the absolute amount of blood flow is less. The blood flow to the heart um, still remains at 4 to 5%, but now it's 4 to 5% of a bigger number. So that means it's more blood flow. Um, A lower percentage to the kidneys, but the relative amount of blood flow is about the same. Uh, much lower percentage to the bone, and uh, blood flow is relatively the same. Um, You have a lower percentage of blood flow to the brain, but the absolute amount of blood flow is the same. And uh, then you have um, pretty much everything left, all the blood flow you have left, going to the skeletal muscles. So 80 to 85% going to the skeletal muscle. So of that 25 liters per minute, the majority of that blood flow is going to active skeletal muscle, which is where you need it to be going because that's what's going to actually be working in this kind of exercise. The other way you can look at this figure is uh, it actually shows you what the relative change in blood flow is during strenuous exercise as it compares to rest. So the dotted line right across the center would be zero, no change, no change in blood flow. Any, any one of the organs that's above that line means that blood flow is increased to that organ during exercise. And any organ that's below that line suggests that blood flow is reduced to that organ during exercise. So if we go on that figure, you can see that the digestive tract blood flow is decreased. The heart blood flow is increased. The kidney, the bone, the brain are unchanged. Skin blood flow is decreased. And skeletal muscle is basically increased as well. So the key to this is you only have so much blood the heart can pump. You only have so high the cardiac output can go. So effectively what you have to do is you have to redirect the blood flow so that it only goes to the tissue that's active and does not go to the tissue that is inactive. because it's uh so like for the kidneys it's 20 percent of uh five liters which is uh basically a liter of blood per minute and then two to four percent and oh that is less yeah, yeah so it's a little bit less um a little 200 milliliters less yeah so it is less um so, not drawn to specific detail. The key, the, but the key of this figure is to show you that, for the most part, the way that you're able to, to get more blood flow to the skeletal muscle is by outputting more blood flow from the heart and slightly reducing blood flow to inactive tissues. Okay. Any other questions? All right, so to look at this one more time... <laughs> Uh, if we have a graph uh, with response on the y axis and exercise intensity on the x axis, keep in mind that 25 to 50 percent is low intensity exercise, 50 to 75 percent would be moderate intensity exercise, 75 to 100 percent would be strenuous exercise. And in general, across all of the tissues that are inactive during exercise, you have about a 20 percent reduction in blood flow to those tissues. And if you look at some skeletal muscle during exercise, there could be an increase in blood flow to uh, approximately 1,400% of the pre-exercise value. And for the most part, it's a linear relationship. So the harder, that the, mus- the, harder the muscle is working, the more blood flow can be directed to it. And vice versa, the harder the muscle is working, the less blood flow or more blood flow will be redirected from the inactive tissues. for approximately 1,400% of rest. Okay, so like I said, the, the, the point is to highlight that the way that you get more blood flow to your active muscle is by increasing the cardiac output and then redistributing some of the blood flow to accomplish that. So how does the body know that the muscle is exercising? And uh, that's still a little bit of a a controversy, but there's some uh, evidence to suggest how that occurs. And uh, one school of thought suggests that somehow the muscle has a way to auto-regulate blood flow. And the way that this would work is that you would first withdraw sympathetic vasoconstriction So we, we've just very briefly talked about, uh, in some of the online lectures, talked about the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous systems. Those are the autonomic branches of the nervous system, automatic control. And when we talked about those, um, one of the things I didn't talk about was how specifically they're activated during exercise. And usually, with respect to the heart, if you want to increase heart rate, you activate the sympathetic nervous system. And if you want to decrease heart rate, you activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Well, one of the problems during exercise is that in the blood vessels, there, are not, there isn't a sensor that tells the blood vessel to dilate and another vessel that tells the, the vessel to constrict. What there is is there is a, a, a receptor or a stimulus that tells the, uh, the vessel to constrict. So it becomes smaller in diameter and uh, basically that vessel either gets a signal telling it to constrict, or it does not get a signal. And if it does not get a signal, that means it's always going to vasodilate. So in this case, the way that you're able to increase blood flow to the active skeletal muscle is you remove the sympathetic signal that would tell those vessels to constrict, and the net effect is they dilate. once you have dilated the vessels that supply the skeletal muscle, blood flow will be increased to meet the metabolic demand. And so, for instance, the higher the exercise intensity, the, the more muscle that's involved, the more blood flow that will be redistributed to those skeletal, active skeletal muscles. So some of the key stimuli that dictate this response uh, hopefully shouldn't be very surprising. One of the primary signals is a reduction in O2 tension or O2 pressure or O2 concentration. So anytime there's a reduction in oxygen content within the muscle, you get a reduction in, or you get an increase in skeletal muscle blood flow. A second factor is an increase in CO2 tension. So anytime there's an increased concentration of carbon dioxide in the muscle, there will be an increase in blood flow to that muscle. And finally, when there is a reduction in pH within the muscle, which is consistent with an accumulation of hydrogen ions, there will be an increased blood flow to the muscle. We'll we'll talk about this a little bit more with respiratory physiology, but um, one thing that we know for sure is that if you're looking at a, a healthy individual exercising at sea level, it's very rare that oxygen's ever a limiting factor during performance. And usually, really what the limiting factor ends up becoming is how quickly you can move carbon dioxide and hydrogen ions out of the muscle. A force signal which can contribute to um, an increase in muscle blood flow is a change in potassium concentration. So that's delta potassium concentration, so delta mean change. Change in potassium concentration. Okay. So obviously to maintain the resting membrane potential in the skeletal muscle, you have to have sodium and you have to have potassium. And if you start drastically changing sodium or potassium, it's going to affect the resting membrane potential, which in turn affects contractility of the skeletal muscle. And the body will detect those changes, and it will immediately redirect blood flow to uh, account for those changes. A fifth factor contributing to uh, redirection of muscle blood flow is a change in adenosine concentration. And uh, as we've discussed before, the muscle cell has a uh, finite supply of adenosine, and it exists in essentially one of three forms. It exists as adenosine monophosphate, adenosine diphosphate, or adenosine triphosphate. And effectively, if something happened and you started to lose adenosine, that would effectively mean the muscle cells losing the ability to make ATP which is not a good thing, and uh, the muscle blood flow will be uh, increased to account for that. A sixth factor contributing to this is uh, a, uh, a change in nitric oxide concentration. And basically nitro- nitric oxide is a second mes- secondary messenger that influences uh, vasoconstriction and vasodilation. And uh, basically, if you um, if you alter that concentration, you're going to alter blood flow. Um, Ironically, all the nice, all the all the drugs that if you watch sporting events, that's when they advertise them, is all the erectile dysfunction drugs that you could ever want. They uh, that's how they work is by mediating nitric oxide. Uh, The reason that um, that's kind of interesting is because there's a paper, it was in the, I think it was, I remember where I read it, but there's a paper published about two years ago suggesting that uh, those drugs may have performance benefits beyond athletic performance benefits. Um, so one thing, though, the World Anti-Doping Agency is looking at right now is whether or not uh, there's some validity to those uh, studies and whether or not that needs to be on the banned list as well for athletes. Okay, uh, so it's a little bit about how we actually redistribute a blood flow, so a little bit more about um, things about the blood that change, and that relates to hemodynamics. And hemodynamics is the study of the interrelationship between blood pressure, blood resistance, and flow. And there's a pretty fine line between uh, blood pressure and resistance to blood flow and actual blood flow that you get. And uh, there's, you know, there's a number of effects. Uh, a common effect if you lived at, an alti- at a high altitude and then you, you came back to a sea level, if you measured someone's blood from that situation, they would tend to have uh, a lot of red blood cells in their blood, and their blood would be very concentrated. And when the more concentrated the blood is, the more difficult it is for the heart to pump it. Uh, Normally, the blood's a nice liquid consistency, and if you dramatically increase the red blood cell concentration, you can make it uh, really thick. And the thicker the blood is, there's a couple things. The harder it is for the heart to pump that blood, it means it has to work a lot harder, and uh, it doesn't flow as well. It doesn't flow as quickly. So there's a fine line and a fine concentration between having enough red blood cells to be effective and having enough red blood cells to compromise circulation. And one of the big problems, at least with – there's lots of strategies endurance athletes use to try and boost performance. But uh, blood doping was used initially, and then uh, there's more complex ways of doing it now. But uh, with blood doping, basically what you would do is you would go in a couple of months before your event. You would have them take out a liter to a liter and a half of uh, plasma – of uh, blood – You would isolate the red cells out of it, freeze those, and then come back right before your event and inject those into the bloodstream. And so you're not changing your blood volume. All you're doing is dramatically increasing the number of red blood cells you have, which means the blood can carry more oxygen. The drawback to that is that uh, it also makes the blood thicker, uh, which makes it harder for the heart to pump it, and you're more likely to have uh, some sort of cardiovascular event from it. Also, a lot of people have tried to abuse, uh, there's... There's lots of drugs on the market, lots of, ph- of prescription drugs that are used to boost red blood cell performance uh, production. They're mostly used for cancer patients because in different types of cancer uh, chemotherapy or radiation therapy, it does influence the bone's ability to make red blood cells. So there's some drugs on the market like erythropoietin that are used at, at pharmacological doses to elicit uh, a positive increase in red blood cell production. And then what uh, athletes do is they somehow get a hold of that prescription ju- drug, and they take it at like 1,400 times recommended dosage. And in doing that, they get the same effect of blood doping. It's just uh, they're not ever having to take any blood cells out. They're just are getting a whole lot more blood cells being pushed out of their body. So certainly when you look at, you know, and again, that has some very real consequences for the heart, and then it does have some obvious performance benefits that could give somebody an edge, which is why those substances were banned. What type of athlete would An endurance athlete. Yeah, so um, basically, in an elite-level endurance athlete, one of the things that does limit performance is how much oxygen you can deliver to the muscle. And the more oxygen you can deliver, the, the greater your capability to produce ATP with the aerobic energy systems would be which basically has all kinds of implications for the, the positioning of the lactate threshold in particular, meaning they could basically exercise for a longer period of time using their aerobic systems only, which means they would essentially be able to run or race an event faster. Uh, but there are, like I said, there are very real consequences that it has for the cardiovascular system, and there's a lot of events that have been documented in individuals that that do those types of things. That uh, there's very real damage being done to the heart. The uh, the way that blood flow actually works is the blood always flows from um, high concentration or high pressure to low pressure. So just like the pretty much the whole semester, anytime we've talked about the movement of some <coughs> substance, we've always talked about it moving from something that's high to something that's low. In this case, the way that the heart works is that uh, when blood flows out of the heart, it does that because the pressure in the left ventricle is greater than the pressure in the aorta. Well, how does it accomplish that? Well, what happens is your heart's at rest, the ventricles fill with blood, and then when the heart is ready to contract, it closes the valves. And you have a certain volume of blood in the left ventricle, and then you s- contract the heart. And when you contract the heart, that Decreases the size of the left ventricle Which causes an increase in pressure So by the principles Of the way pressure pressure and volume work If you had a given volume And you compress it into a a space That's half the size You would double the pressure So it's not the contraction of the heart per se That causes the blood to be expelled Uh, The contraction of the heart Just increases the pressure And then it's a, a physiological principle That things move from high to low In this case, high pressure in the left ventricle low pressure in the aorta. Uh, one major concern that a lot of people have uh, when you look at disease states is normally the pressure in the aorta at rest is somewhere around 80 millimeters of mercury. Okay, so if you do your blood pressure systolic over diastolic, the diastolic blood pressure is the pressure essentially in the arteries when the heart is relaxed. That value is the value that the heart has to work over in order to pump blood. So normally, there's different numbers. We'll look at some of them a little later on. But you could increase the pressure in the left ventricle, say, to around 130, 140 millimeters of mercury. And basically, blood will flow from the heart until the pressures are equal. So when the pressure in the left ventricle and the pressure in the aorta are equal, blood flow stops. And um, in a healthy heart, the the heart doesn't have to work very hard to do that because the pressure in the aorta is relatively low compared to the ventricle. But if you ha- if you look at somebody who has cardiovascular disease, one of the most obvious signs of it is there is an elevation of systolic blood pressure. So the systolic blood pressure may get to 90 millimeters of mercury, 95, 100. I've seen some people that are pretty bad off that have uh, blood pressures at around 120. Um, at rest, that's very bad because the heart basically two things happen. It can't contract usually any harder than it already is, which means it can't increase the blood pressure that much more. It will try to, and eventually that causes a lot of strain on the heart because it can't move as much blood with every beat, which means you have to pump the heart a whole lot more, which means the heart rate tends to be elevated as well, and then that leads to a whole other set of problems. So in general, that's one of the reasons why cardiovascular disease is so bad is because it puts a lot of stress on the heart. All right, so the key components of the blood itself are essentially plasma, which is the liquid portion of the blood. And in the liquid portion is where you find dissolved uh, all the different types of ions, so sodium, potassium, chloride... Uh, You also find uh, your hormones dissolve there, some proteins, and other nutrients like glucose or fatty acids or uh, any other types of things that would float that the body would use. The other part of the blood, sorry about the red, is uh, the cells, so the cells that are located in the blood, and primarily this is the red blood cells, which are the oxygen-carrying cells. Uh, Red blood cells are unique structures in the sense that uh, they lack nuclei. They have no nucleus, which means that uh, they have no capacity to divide. So once they're terminally differentiated into red blood cells, they serve their life expectancy, which is a few days, and then they die. Uh, The other thing that's unique about red blood cells is they don't have mitochondria. So the only way they make the energy that they require is by glycolysis which has, if you were looking in more depth at how red blood cells are affected by exercise, that has a whole other set of circumstances that have to be considered. But uh, one thing you do have to consider is um, if you look at studies that have measured glucose glucose responses to exercise, one of the things we know about glucose is that if you take a blood sample, you have to immediately separate the red blood cells from the, the plasma. Because if you don't, you won't get an accurate representation of uh, the glucose values. So basically if I took a glu- uh, blood sample and I measured it immediately and then I waited uh, a couple hours later and measured it, you would get a, sub- a significant difference in the glucose concentration because the red blood cells that are just sitting there will just uh, eat all that glucose up. the other types of cells which are less predominant in the bloodstream but also present are the white blood cells and these are the cells that are key to the immune system response the final it's called a, it's usually called a cell but it's really not a cell is uh, platelets and platelets um, are involved in clotting response they're not cells though what they what there are is there's a big cell um, that Essentially, pieces of this big cell break off. And these pieces have a membrane, but they have no nucleus and they have no organelles. And their sole function is to facilitate clotting responses. And in some cases, they can also get confused and get involved in some, some disease processes they shouldn't. But they're not cells, they don't have any of the classic things that make up a cell. So they're just their own category, other. The, looking a little bit more at the components of blood, you have stem cells in your bone. Um, so the white blood cells, the red blood cells, and the platelets—they all come from stem cells in the blood, and then they're differentiated into their various what they'll end up becoming. Um, so and then all the all the cells of the immune system—they all have different names based on where they actually. Uh, mature. Um, Probably everyone's heard of T T cells. T cells are important to lots of different parts of your immune response. They're called T cells because they they mature in the thymus gland. And then there's the B cells, which are the ones that make all your antibodies. They're the ones that uh, give you resistance to uh, vaccines that you've had. And those cells are called B cells because they mature in the bloodstream. And the the list goes on. Okay, so the hematocrit is one, another way that you can look at, the, uh, the, at blood, and uh, blood is basically a suspension. It's a, it's, so it's, it's a suspension that if you let it sit out long enough, it will separate into the cells and the plasma. And if you were to do that, uh, you could make some different type of measurements. The first thing that you could measure is what we refer to as the total volume. And there's a couple different ways. Uh, if we just get a blood sample, we could, using a calculation, estimate about what your blood volume is. But there are some ways that you can directly estimate blood volume that actually work really well. Uh, one one technique is something called uh, the Evans Blue Dye Test. And in the Evans Blue Dye Test, uh, I don't even know who Evan was. I suspect the person who developed this blue dye. But uh, basically it looks like blue food coloring that... Um, doesn't, it obviously won't poison you. But what you do is you can mix this dye up in the laboratory. And you can mix it so it has a known concentration of blue dye in it. And known concentration translates to how dark the dye, the dye actually looks. The darker the dye, the more the dye molecules that are in there. And if you know the volume of the blue dye that you have, and you know the concentration of the blue dye that you have, you can then take that dye and inject it in the bloodstream have the person walk around for a little while, take a blood sample, and measure the concentration of the blue dye that's in the bloodstream. And once you know the two things that you started with and the concentration of blue dye in the bloodstream, you can calculate the blood volume. And that's a pretty straightforward calculation that's used in lots of uh, different uh, laboratory settings. So that's one way you can directly measure it. Um, Another way that you can directly measure it that's a lot more uh, invasive is you can actually uh, hook the individual up to a dialysis machine, and you can use that machine to to tell you the actual blood volume the individual has. The uh, the second thing that we can get from the matocrit is the plasma volume. The third is the packed cell volume. And keep in mind that the packed cell volume will include the red blood cells the white blood cells and the platelets. This is a picture of what a blood sample would essentially look like if we took this blood sample and went to the laboratory and we centrifuged it. And if we centrifuged it, you would basically get this yellow straw-colored portion, which is the plasma. You would see a little white interface at the level of the red blood cells. That's the white blood cells, and then you would see a red blood cell pellet. The, the thing in, in doing research with lots of different people over the years with lots of different uh, levels of disease status, I can tell you that people that are healthy, when you take their blood, their, their plasma or serum is really, clear. it's yellow, but it's clear yellow. You can see through it without any problem. And uh, the higher the person's cholesterol tends to be, the worse the plasma looks, and uh, most of the people we've, we've had through in studies that are not in good shape, their plasma is like a milky yellow color that you can't see through. And that's because of all the cholesterol and other things that are just floating around the blood that you really don't want there. But in this instance, uh, what we would usually do if we wanted to make some measurements on this, you just use a ruler. Measure the total distance of the whole fluid from the top to the bottom. You can then measure the distance of the red cell pellet You can divide that by the total distance, and that tells you the percentage of uh, red cells that you have, or the hematocrit. And the hematocrit's a really useful measurement, especially during exercise, because one thing that we know is that the absolute number of red cells that you have during exercise really isn't gonna change. So if you measured somebody before exercise and you measured the absolute number of red cells they had, it's not going to be any different before or after exercise. But if you had that person exercise and you didn't give them any fluid to drink while they're exercising, there's a pretty good chance that if you exercise them hard enough that they would start sweating. And in in sweating, sweat is generated from plasma. So effectively during exercise, this individual could lose plasma, which would make it appear, again, if you took a blood sample after exercise, it would make it appear like they had, um, more, uh, had more red blood cells after exercise. The hematocrit would appear to increase. And that's because the total, uh, the total distance hasn't changed, but the amount of plasma has decreased. And uh, that essentially means that uh, it's indicative of an increase in hematocrit, which, again, that has implications for how you're able to pump blood flow. So certainly if you become very dehydrated, it's very bad to continue to exercise or exercise again until you're rehydrated. Because it's, again, compromising blood flow. All right, uh, so that's a little bit about hematocrit. Looking at the oxygen consumption response a bit more. We've talked about oxygen consumption a lot uh, to date. Um, Hopefully this uh, this statement's um, obvious and clear to everyone, is that exercise increases the muscle's demand for oxygen. The harder you exercise, the greater that demand will be. And uh, what is really driving that demand is the need to make ATP at a certain rate. So if I took you to the lab and I had you exercise at 75% of your VO2 max and you can do that for a long period of time, the reason that you can do that is because your body is capable of making ATP at the same rate that it's being used. And the reason that it can do that is because it's being supplied with oxygen and other things that it requires. The, uh, the VO2 can be calculated, uh, well in the laboratory one of the ways that we calculate it is using a metabolic cart, which measures gas concentrations and gives us a number. Another way you can calculate VO2 is by using this equation. And this equation Q is cardiac output. Times the AvO2 difference. So Q cardiac output. That's what we talked about uh, just a little while ago. And cardiac output is essentially uh, calculated by two things. It's calculated by the heart rate and the stroke volume. And during exercise, one of the reasons that cardiac output increases is because you have an increase in heart rate and stroke volume. Now, one of these is more important to the overall change in cardiac output, and we'll look at we'll look at a graph that will demonstrate that in just a moment. So, cardiac output that's the amount of blood that's being pumped per minute. Heart rate is the number of beats per minute, stroke volume is the volume of blood per beat. And when you multiply those out, uh, essentially beats cancel out and you're left with liters of blood per minute. The AvO2 difference is um, exactly what the acronym suggests. It's also known as the atrial venous difference. And it's literally what it appears to be. It's the difference in oxygen concentration between the arteries and the veins. So essentially, if you took the, and you knew the arterial um, concentration of oxygen, and you knew the venous concentration of oxygen, you could subtract the venous concentration from the arterial concentration, and whatever you get, whatever number you get is a number, that's the amount of oxygen that's been taken up by the skeletal muscle. And uh, there's lots of uh, really exotic ways you can uh, document this during exercise. I remember a couple of years ago, um, I, had a, I have a friend that works at a muscle research lab in Copenhagen, Germany, and he came and presented some data, and he was talking about atrial venous differences during exercise, and, I was, and he was, they did lower leg exercise, and I was curious, uh, I said, so how exactly do you measure, I mean, I know how you measure oxygen concentration in the blood, but how do you measure it in the arterial blood and the venous blood during exercise? He goes, well, it's actually a pretty straightforward procedure. We, uh, we just put a catheter into the arterial vein, uh, the femoral vein and the femoral artery. And we measure the blood going into the leg and the blood coming out of the leg. And I said, ah, that kind of sounds painful. And he says, well, yeah, the, the, the femoral vein is pretty easy to get to because it's a surface vein. It's on the inside of the leg. But the arterial vein, ar excuse me, the femoral artery is right next to the femur. Uh, it's deep. It's really deep down. And the only way you can usually get it with a catheter is you have to use a very long needle. And uh, you have to get, put the needle in just the right place. He had some videos showing the, how to position it. But you essentially have to, there's a, a, plate, there's a space between... The hamstring, the biceps femoris, and the hamstring group, and the uh, vastus uh, medialis. There's a, a small space of connective tissue, and that's where you have to fit the needle through. And uh, but definitely not something I would want to have done. They uh, they paid the people like three thousand bucks to uh, to let them do that, among other things to them. Uh, they did a bunch of other crazy stuff to them too, but. Um, yeah, so there's there's ways you can do that. Um, also, there's ways that you can measure cardiac output during exercise. Uh, I remember one of the uh, labs that I volunteered in when I was an undergrad was a cardiovascular lab at a at a medical center, and um, we were doing lots of studies looking at uh, the pressure and blood pressure in different parts of the artery during exercise. And when they were describing it to me, you know, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you're gonna measure blood pressure in the aorta and the the, uh, the vena cava and you're going to measure it uh, a little bit further down the aorta in different locations and as, then I got to thinking about it and I was wondering how you do that because you can't just like put a blood pressure cuff around that that doesn't work that way and what we were actually doing was we were putting um, catheters in the, the elbow and then running pressure sensors back up the artery or vein to the heart and then just leaving those sitting right there while the person's exercising and this is wild because they do the, – the sensors were – they had some metal on them. So essentially what they do, they feed them to where they thought they needed to be, and then they do an x-ray. And they'd say, oh, no, it needs to be a little bit further. And then they feed it a little further and then an x-ray and say, okay, that's the right place. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that you can do um, these kinds of responses to exercise. The, the key to the atrial venous difference is that uh, you want to use it to demonstrate that the skeletal muscle has taken up oxygen during exercise. And the arterial O2 concentration will always be greater than the venous O2 concentration. Uh, again, one of the problems that happens in individuals with advanced uh, pulmonary disease in particular is there's a significant drop in arterial O2 concentration. And when you drop arterial O2 concentration, you're dropping how much oxygen the muscle will actually be able to take up from the blood. And that has implications for VO2 max. The the other way that can happen is if you had a healthy individual and you took them to a high altitude, there would be a drop in arterial O2 concentration because there's less oxygen in the atmospheric air. And that would effectively translate to less oxygen being delivered to the skeletal muscle, which would compromise performance. So this graph is meant to demonstrate uh, blood pressure responses to different intensities of exercise, uh, the same continuum on the x-axis here, and this is increasing levels of blood pressure on the y-axis. And if you look at the diastolic blood pressure, so this is the blood pressure in the heart, or the blood pressure in the arteries when the heart is relaxed, this value really doesn't tend to increase much during exercise. Normal resting values are around 80 millimeters of mercury and it may increase to around 82 millimeters of mercury with max exercise. And the key is that you don't want this value to increase very much because if it increased a lot, it would change how much blood the heart's able to pump when it beats. The flip side to this would be if you looked at systolic blood pressure. So, systolic blood pressure is the pressure in the artery when the heart is contracting, and at rest, the systolic blood pressure is around 120 millimeters of mercury, and with max exercise, it could increase in excess of 180 millimeters of mercury, so a pretty substantial increase in systolic blood pressure. The final line that we can put on here is something called mean arterial pressure. And mean arterial pressure is essentially the average pressure in the arteries uh, at different uh, different intervals. So in this case, at rest, the MAP is around 80, and the MAP can in- increase to an excess of 100 with maximal exercise. So some people suggest that the, uh, the MAP is actually a more uh, efficient way to look at blood pressure because um, the reality is that... Uh, There's different periods of time when different parts of the heart's contraction contribute more or less to blood pressure. And uh, that's effectively accounted for in the formula that's used to calculate the mean arterial pressure. But the bottom line is with any, any value that takes into account the pressure in the arteries when the heart is contracting, that will increase in response to exercise. This graph is meant to show the relationship between exercise intensity and other factors which influence the heart. And as I indicated just a minute ago, cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume. And again, these are, if you wanted to know the cardiac output uh, or you wanted to know any of these components to calculate the cardiac output, that can be done relatively easy. And uh, one of the most common techniques that's used to calculate cardiac output is something that's called uh, CO2 rebreathing or acetylene rebreathing. And it works really similar to um, how I described the blue dye test. Uh, Basically what you would do is you would go in the lab, you would make, uh, if you're doing CO2 rebreathing, you'd make a a bag. And the bags that we use are essentially atmospheric balloons. Make a giant bag of... um, Uh, Gas, which has a known amount of carbon dioxide in it, and then you basically have the person uh, breathe, inhale, and exhale into that bag for a a fixed period of time. And then you measure the concentration of gas in that that air that's still in the bag. And there will be a difference between um, what you started with and what you actually have, and then you can use that to calculate how much blood flow you have. Uh, the other way to do that would be to use acetylene rebreathing, and it works the same way except you mix a gas, which has a known concentration of acetylene in it. And, yes, that's the same acetylene that welders use, but it's in low concentrations effective for this, this purpose because the body can't really take it up. The, uh, the other thing that you could do is heart rate's really easy to measure. So you can measure heart rate by telemetry or you can measure it by EKG. So you can easily measure heart rate that way, so, if you only knew stroke volume, you could calculate cardiac output. So, one way that you can calculate stroke volume is to actually use do- Doppler ultrasound. So, you can uh, use an ultrasound probe. You can put it right over the um, the aorta, and you can measure how much blood's being pumped per beat. So, when you look at heart rate responses to exercise. Effectively, what you see is that at rest, the resting heart rate is around 75 beats per minute. Uh, in general, the more trained you are, the lower your heart rate will be. Um, that's, that response is something that's called a, an increase in uh, vagal tone. The uh, right vagus nerve is the nerve which supplies the parasympathetic nervous system to the heart. And in a trained person, that part of the nervous system is activated rest, causing the heart rate to be less. And um, we, uh, just in our experience with some of the athletes we've worked with, we've seen some very, very low heart rates. Um, I think the lowest heart rate I've seen from uh, this well, really well-trained, um, so I think it was a, yeah, it was, it was a female triathlete. Her heart rate was about 19 beats per minute at rest, um, which is just, I mean, that's consistent with uh, some massive adaptation within the, uh, the nervous control systems. So anyway, with maximal exercise, the heart rate could rise in excess of 190 beats per minute. Uh, You can get a very, very rough indication as to what an individual's maximum heart rate would be by taking 220 220 and subtracting their age. But I would suggest that that's a very rough estimation because um, in really really well-trained individuals, it's pretty common that they can far exceed their age-predicted max heart rate. And so if you truly want to know max heart rate, the way that you do that is you do a maximal exercise test, meaning that you put the person on the bike and you incrementally increase the workload till they absolutely say they cannot go anymore and they need to stop. And that would be their maximal heart rate. Stroke volume responds to exercise a little bit differently. And at rest, the stroke volume is around 80 mils of blood per beat. And somewhere around 50% of, uh, if you're exercising around 50% of maximal effort, that's about where stroke volume plateaus. And at that point, uh, effectively, the stroke volume is somewhere around 110 milliliters per beat. And the reason that that occurs is because there is a trade off between the heart rate and the stroke volume. And effectively, the faster the heart contracts, the less time it has to fill with blood and the less blood it can pump per beat. And so when you look at cardiac output, while both these factors allow you to calculate what the cardiac output is, and they both contribute to cardiac output, the most important factor affecting cardiac output during exercise is an increase in heart rate. So if we put cardiac output on this graph, you can see that at rest the cardiac output is around five liters per minute. And with maximal exercise, that cardiac output can exceed 20 liters per minute. And you'll see that it has a a biphasic response. So initially, it increases pretty rapidly to around 50% of VO2 max. And that increase is being driven by increases in stroke volume and increases in heart rate. And then after 50% of the VO2 max, it slows down. It still increases, but the increase isn't as rapid. And that's occurring because stroke volume is plateaued and heart rate is continuing to increase. This graph is meant to demonstrate the relationship between exercise intensity and AVO2 difference. And um, it's hard to assign differences or numerical values to AVO2 difference, but in general, this is what it tends to look like. Uh, Its response to some extent mirrors cardiac output, so you have uh, pretty rapid increases to around 50% of maximal effort, and then slow, gradual increases after that point. But the bottom line is the difference between the arterial and venous oxygen concentration increases as a response to increase in exercise intensity. If we look at the steady state responses a little bit more that we've talked about previously, on the y-axis we have response, on the x-axis exercise duration we have an individual starting at rest. If we had them exercise at a fixed intensity, you would expect to see an increase in the response, and then a plateau, which would establish a steady state. If we then remove the exercise stimulus, the response that we were measuring would return to baseline levels. And for the most part, the things that we measure with response with respect to the cardiovascular system, they respond in steady state type of uh, in a steady state type of manner. However, at the end of this first steady state, if we were to increase the exercise intensity, you would find that the response would further increase and then further plateau and establish a second steady state. And it's because these responses have a steady state uh, to them is the reason that you can do incremental exercise testing. So some of the things that we've talked about today is that have steady state responses is heart rate, cardiac output, stroke volume, and blood pressure. And it's kind of, uh, stroke volume has a steady state response, but it will only really be observed up until about 50% of VO2 max. And then above that, if you increase the exercise intensity, you're not going to get a further increase in stroke volume. The double product of the heart is a measurement that can be used to rate the stress or metabolic demand that's being placed on the heart. The way that you calculate the double product is by taking the heart rate and multiplying it by the systolic blood pressure. And so high heart rates put stress on the heart. Higher systolic blood pressures also put stress on the heart. And in a normal resting individual, so it says resting, the heart rate of about 75 millimeters of mercury, or excuse me, 75 beats per minute, and a blood pressure of around 120 millimeters of mercury translates to a double product value of around 9,000. In comparison, if you look at someone exercising at a max, maximal type of exercise response, you might see a heart rate of around 200 beats per minute and blood pressure of around 200 millimeters of mercury which would translate to a double product of around 40,000 or more than four times uh, resting value. Uh, In general, the double product is pretty useful in uh, cardiac rehab settings and is often used to determine and design an exercise program to minimize the stress and metabolic demand on the heart when it's recovering. All right, so uh, looking at the long duration exercise response a little bit more. And uh, what we're going to be looking at is exercise, which is at a fixed intensity, so 60, somewhere and typically somewhere between 65 to 85% of maximal effort. And uh, long duration, we're defining as something longer than sixty minutes. During this type of exercise, uh, if you're not consuming any kind of supplemental liquid during exercise, there's a pretty good chance that at some point the heart, the body's going to develop what's known as cardiovascular drift. Okay, I gotta quit using red. Um, And in cardiovascular drift, uh, these are what the key responses are. The key response is that despite the fact that it's fixed intensity, steady state exercise, you suddenly have an increase in heart rate. That is also coupled with a uh, reduction or further reduction in stroke volume. And the net effect is that cardiac output is uh, maintained at relatively the same level. I have a graph in just a second that will kind of show what this looks like a little bit more. Some of the possible causes for what, why um, cardiovascular drift occurs is uh, one thing is related to an increase in body temperature. And when you increase body temperature, the body has to have some way to get rid of... Essentially, if you increase body temperature, that there's one of two reasons that's occurring. One reason would be the exercise intensity is such that you're generating a massive amount of entropy while making ATP. The other situation would be that your environmental conditions are hotter than the body is, in which case the body is absorbing heat from the environment. In either of those situations, the body is going to have to move blood flow to the skin because it's got to take the heat that's getting absorbed by the body and get it to the skin so that it can be lost by sweating. And whenever you do that, you're taking away blood flow that could be going to skeletal muscle. You're also changing how blood flow goes back to the heart. And when you change blood flow back to the heart, that causes a reduction in stroke volume. A second factor which contributes to cardiovascular drift is dehydration. And effectively, if you are dehydrated, your uh, stroke volume will drop. It'll drop because your plasma volume drops. There's less blood for the, the heart to pump. Stroke volume goes down. Your body wants to maintain cardiac output. The only way it can accomplish that is to increase heart rate. But you can only do that so, for so long. And uh, you you have a maximal heart rate programmed in your body, and when your heart gets to the maximal heart rate, it won't be able to increase that anymore. Stroke volume will probably continue to decline, and the net effect is cardio. cardio Cardiac output will also be uh, reduced. The, uh, the the net effect of both of these responses is that there's a reduction in blood flow return to the heart, or a reduction in venous return. And reduced venous return means there's less blood in the heart to pump. And uh, the only way the heart can pump the same amount of blood per minute is to pump is to make the heart contract more rapidly. This graph is meant to demonstrate what the uh, cardiovascular drift response looks like. And effectively, if you measured cardiac output, this is what it would look like it's doing. Cardiac output would be maintained. It wouldn't appear to uh, do anything else. So it's in a steady state. It would remain in a steady state. Again, this is the equation for cardiac output, heart rate times stroke volume. And we're having a significant reduction in stroke volume as a result of a reduction in venous return to the heart. And in order to maintain cardiac output, the only way that you could accomplish that is to uh, increase the heart rate. So the net effect is that stroke volume is reduced because of metabolic demands that are being placed on the body. The heart rate is increased to compensate for the reduction, and cardiac output is maintained, which is what you're trying to accomplish. Any questions about what's going on Okay, so just to summarize some of the exercise responses we've looked at. If you remove vagus stimulation of the, uh, the heart, which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system, that's the first step. <coughs> The second step is to activate um, the sympathetic nervous system. And that's done by a series of nerves called the cardiac accelerator nerves or neurons. And these activate the uh, conducting system within the heart, which affects heart rate. And they also uh, interact with all the heart tissue, which influences how hard the heart is able to contract. You also have some changes in blood flow, which we talked about. So um, the, essentially the redistribution of blood flow from inactive tissues to active tissues. So this is the vasodilation of the arterioles that lead to active skeletal muscle and the vasoconstriction of arterioles to the inactive tissues. Uh, primarily those are the digestive tract and the uh, the bone and the kidneys and, and things like that. Uh, it's one of the one of the kind of unintended consequences of the reduction in blood flow to the skeletal or to the digestive tract is that if you eat a really heavy meal while you're exercising, it's very hard for the, the body to digest that. So if you look at most of uh, sport drinks and things like that on the market that are actually designed to drink during exercise. They're designed to carry a very minimal uh, carbohydrate content to them so that it's not a distress on the the body. The fourth uh, effect of all these changes is there's an increase in cardiac output that's being facilitated initially by an increase in heart rate and stroke volume, and then in the latter stages of exercise by um, heart rate alone. And as I said a a couple times now, heart rate is the key contributor to cardiac output changes during exercise. A fifth effect and essentially the the key outcome that you're trying to get to is the increase of blood flow to active tissues. So you redirect what you have and um, you pump what you have more effectively. So how exactly do we go about controlling all these responses? The, uh, essentially, it's not really fully known or understood how the body controls these responses during exercise. Um, the general theory that's usually uh, subscribed to is something that's called the exercise pressor reflex. And under the exercise pressor reflex, You have either muscle mechanoreceptors, so these are either the Golgi uh, tendon organ or the muscle spindle. And you have uh, chemoreceptors, which are essentially detecting potassium concentration, acid or lactic acid concentration, ADP, AMP, etc. A combination of these sensors detect muscle action. Once muscle action is detected, the brain is informed of that muscle action. So the red says brain. And the brain will then adjust the output of the cardiovascular control center, which is located in the medulla. Whoops. Okay, well, I must not have finished what I was writing there. Um, And then the fourth thing would be that um, once you've altered the output of the cardiovascular control center, that's going to then cause a change in heart rate and in stroke volume, which are going to cause an increase in cardiac output. And it's also going to alter some of the, uh, the properties associated with the amount of oxygen, which is in the arterial blood and the venous blood. So, effectively, those changes are going to be consistent with changes in VO2, cardiac output, and AVO2 difference. Um, so, I'll say it one more time, it'll be similar. Um, the, um, so, the key to altering the cardiovascular control center is that you're trying to facilitate changes in heart rate, stroke volume. And in changing heart rate and stroke volume, you're going to change cardiac output. Simultaneously, you're also changing the way the muscles are able to absorb oxygen, which alters the AVO2 difference. And uh, the net effect of altering the AVO2 difference and the cardiac output is that you'll have an increase in VO2. And during aerobic exercise, that's what you want to do. You want to be able to increase your oxygen consumption. All right. So, just some key things to keep in mind as you kind of prepare to hopefully learn this information is that exercises increase or exercise increases um, the demand of blood by active skeletal muscle. The demand is met by an interaction between the nervous and cardiovascular sy- uh, systems. And They interact to essentially increase blood flow to active skeletal muscle, to decrease blood flow to inactive tissues, and also the exercise intensity or how hard you're working, how hard the exercise is, influences the magnitude of the response. So the harder that you're working, the more likely you are to have a greater response. And finally, why most of these responses adhere to the steady state principle, uh, specifically with stroke volume and cardiac output and heart rate, those can be subject to the effects of cardiovascular drift during very long-duration activity. Okay, so we'll just wrap up with a couple questions, and then we will call it a day. Okay, so first up, uh, during exercise, blood flow increases to which of the following tissues? A, skeletal muscle, B, the skin, C, di- the digestive tract, and D, some of the above. So when you respond to this question, think about, um, well, the the figure I showed at the very beginning, but also think about um, where the blood flow may need to go in a long-duration exercise type of response. Okay, so right there at the end, obviously the answer I intended for the question was some of these because if you're looking, certainly if you're just looking at exercise under normal conditions, and I probably should have prefaced that in the answer, is that um, if under normal conditions, you would really only redirect blood flow to the skeletal muscle. But if you're looking at a long-duration type of response, you're probably going to be generating a lot of heat. And that means you're also going to be redirecting some blood flow to the skin as well. So the answer was D, some of these. Of the, which factor or factors has the largest contribution to an increase in cardiac output during exercise? A, stroke volume, B, heart rate, C, both A and B. Emphasis on the largest contribution. shame on anyone who put a or c because i know that i said at least 3 times today just now that if that the factor contributing the largest amount was heart rate So that is it. Uh, Next time, respiratory physiology.